welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to those of you who are following along online and those of you, of course, who are here in person. As all things being equal, you should be. God intends for us to to gather in person, all things being equal. Uh, Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, We will consider especially verses 15 through 31, one of the high points in John. Uh, Every once in a while, as you're preaching through Scripture, you get to a passage, and and you know you're out of your depth. This is one of them. It talks beautifully about the Holy Spirit and His coming and all that that means. And in so so many ways, I I feel there's more to this than I've uh, probably even begun to understand. In any case, let's hear God's Word together, John 14, 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. You are incomparable. Uh, We thank you for planning our salvation in eternity past, for accomplishing our salvation by sending your Son and applying your salvation through the work of your Holy Spirit and imparting spiritual life at conversion and sustaining that life. We thank you, Lord, that you save us from beginning to end, from A to Z. All the glory belongs to you, and we praise your holy name. And Father, even as we gather this morning, uh, we lift up our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Uh, We pray that you would be with them, Lord. We pray that you would sustain your saints in the Ukraine, uh, grant that their faith would persevere to the end, strengthen them for the ordeal ahead, help them to prove faithful to Jesus regardless of what they face, and use this dire moment, Lord, to advance your kingdom and draw many to yourself through your son, Jesus. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant peace to that war-torn and troubled land. Uh, We pray that you would glorify your name by granting peace to the Ukraine and the cessation of hostilities. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would act. Uh, we also ask that you would pour out upon us this morning your spirit, the spirit of truth. Cause your word not simply to stimulate our minds and give us 
uh, insight, but cause your word to set our hearts on fire. Grant us to encounter you, the one true and living God, through your word and spirit this morning. We pray that you would meet us here and sanctify us through your truth, making us more like Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would challenge us where we need to repent and uh, use this proclamation of your word to accomplish your good purposes for the glory of your name. Amen. Uh, to be a Christian, as we've noted on many occasions, is to believe in the triune God. We confess that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's been a great deal in the Gospel of John about the Father and Son to this point, uh, and also significant material about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we saw, for instance, in John chapter 3, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who imparts spiritual life, is the one who gives sinners the new birth, enabling them to see their need for a Savior and to trust in Jesus. Uh, but it's really in this, at this point in the Gospel of John, the upper room discourse, where Jesus is getting his disciples ready for his imminent departure, that, that the work of the Spirit comes into even sharper focus. There are several significant statements that Jesus makes about the coming of the Holy Spirit in anticipation of his departure, and uh, this is one of them. We'll consider three things this morning. First, uh, we will consider the recipients of the Holy Spirit. To whom is the promise of the Holy Spirit made? That's number one, the recipients. Number two, the promise of another helper. Uh, that's another way of referring to the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. And three, the promise of peace. Promise of peace. Uh, so Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's a form of that statement repeated several times in our passage. And uh, the statement is clear. If you love Jesus, you're going to be committed to obeying him. You can't separate those two things. That's an exercise in self-deception to say, I love Jesus with your lips, uh, but to walk in willful rebellion against him. Those who really love the Lord are going to care about submitting their lives to his holy will, to doing what he commands. Uh, you can't have love for Jesus and not submit to him. Of course, this makes sense. To love Jesus means that you delight in him, you want to please him, uh, you reverence him, and that love ex expresses itself in obedience to his commandments. Uh, if you love Jesus, you'll seek to obey him. To clarify, this doesn't mean sinless perfection. That isn't possible in this life. Uh, there will be times when even those who love Jesus will sin and they will fail. And when that happens, they repent quickly. They confess their sins to Jesus and to the Father, and they ask forgiveness in Jesus' name. And they also ask for strength never again to commit that sin. And they solemnly resolve to press on in obedience, turning from wickedness. So part of loving Jesus is repenting quickly when you do sin. And it also means that the basic trajectory of your life is not defined by rebellion against Jesus, but by obedience to him. There is a basic commitment to him that expresses itself in a life of consistent obedience. That's what it means to love him. It means to keep his commandments. And we need to uh, face the implications of that statement. Uh, if you are harboring in your life at some point rebellion against Jesus, you know there's a place in your life where you are not submitting to the Lord, and you don't care, and you are stubbornly persisting in doing what you want instead of what you know he wants. You need to be very clear about the fact that regardless of what you might say, you don't love Jesus. If, if, you are, if there is something you know that displeases him, and you're doing it anyway because you want to do it, ah, he'll forgive me. If that's your attitude then you are failing to love Jesus Christ as you ought. So it's well worth asking, as we reflect on our lives in light of this verse, 
Is there any place in your life where you know you are sinning against Jesus Christ and refusing to repent? And if there is, that's an indication that there's a a real problem in your life. You're in spiritual danger. And God calls you to turn from your sin, receive his forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and strive to walk in obedience. Now, I want to make a distinction here before moving on to the gift that Jesus promises here. Uh, If we have a superficial reading of this text, it might sound like the way that you get the Holy Spirit or the way you're saved is if you obey Jesus. That salvation comes through our moral striving. And we need to be clear that's not what Scripture teaches. We are saved not because of the good that we do. We are saved. We are pardoned and accepted before God entirely because of what Jesus has done. Uh, We are saved not by our good works, but by simple faith in the work of Jesus. All those who trust in the Lord are pardoned and welcomed into a relationship with God. Our good works contribute nothing, zero, to our salvation. Jesus saves us entirely, and we trust in him. However, all those who are genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ will love him and will walk in obedience to his commands. Obedience doesn't save you, but it is a necessary sign that you are saved. It is the fruit of salvation. So in that sense, we can say that obedience is necessary for salvation. Obedience doesn't save you. Jesus does. But increasing obedience to his commands show that you have spiritual life, show that you uh, have Jesus, show that you are indeed saved. And we have to keep both aspects of that truth together in our minds. So this is not a contradiction that we are saved by grace, but it is to recognize that those who are saved by grace will walk in submission to Jesus Christ. So, What is this gift that Jesus, this promise that Jesus makes to his disciples and to us? Uh, Verse 16, this is, you will remember, as I've noted already, Jesus is is about to leave. Uh, His departure is imminent. But he wants to reassure his disciples and us. I might be leaving, but I'm making provision for my departure. I'm not going to leave you, as he says, as orphans. After his death and resurrection, he will return to the Father, and he will ask the Father. And he, that is the Father, will give you another helper to be with you forever. That word, another, suggests that the Holy Spirit, or the helper who is coming, is going to continue doing what Jesus has been. Just as Jesus has been their helper in his ministry, uh, he has sustained them, he has guided them, so also the Holy Spirit will continue the ministry of Jesus. It is another helper. There's a continuity between the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a helper. The Greek word translated helper is not readily translated into English by just one word. It's sort of a multifaceted word. Uh, One scholar, Ritterboss, Herman Ritterboss, defines the word this way, the word translated helper. A helper is one who offers assistance in a situation in which help is needed. Where there's a need, the helper is ready to uh, jump in there and bring assistance. Jad Packer describes it this way. Uh, He defines helper as helper, advisor, strengthener, encourager, ally, and advocate. Someone who, in our troubles and trials and weakness, comes alongside of us and sustains us. Uh, That means uh, that as Jesus is about to leave, he's saying to his disciples and to us, I may depart. But know that I'm not going to allow you to face the troubles of this life alone. Know that you are not going to be 
allowed to, to deal with temptation and difficulty in the storms of life in your own strength. I may be leaving, but someone else is going to carry out the ministry that I've been performing towards you. A helper is coming to you who's going to empower you to persevere, who's going to protect you from the onslaught of the evil one, who's going to give you the strength to press on when you don't feel like you can put another foot forward. A helper is coming. Continue the ministry that I've already exhibited among you. And that helper will be with you forever. Once the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he will never leave your life. He will be with you forever. The very presence of God, once it comes in, will never forsake you. The Spirit will remain with you for all time. And then in verse 17, the helper or the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. And this expression gets at the fact that the Holy Spirit imparts truth. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to see the truth about Jesus and see uh, the truth about spiritual reality and respond appropriately. He is supremely the Spirit imparting truth. Uh, the world cannot receive him. We saw in John's Gospel that the world refers to mankind in its opposition to God. And just as the world doesn't receive Jesus, so also it doesn't receive the Holy Spirit. But even though Jesus has been talking about the future coming of the Spirit or the Helper, he nevertheless notes, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In what sense has the Holy Spirit been with them? The answer, of course, is that the Holy Spirit has been with them because Jesus has been with them. We've noticed a theme in John's Gospel that wherever the Son is, the Father is. So that if you're in the presence of the Son, you're in the presence of the Father. But now we need to add that when you're in the presence of the Son and the Father, you're also in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has dwelled in their midst because Jesus has dwelled in their midst. And where Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is. You see this tight connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit in John 3.34. He whom God has sent, that's Jesus, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, that is God, gives the, uh, gives the Spirit without measure. John is saying that God the Father pours out the Holy Spirit on the Son without limit, such that where Jesus is, the Spirit is. Uh, and so in that sense, the Spirit has been dwelling with them. At the same time, He will be in you. Notice those two words, with and in. Uh, there is going to be a step forward in their relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is not simply going to dwell among them. He is actually going to indwell them. And that promise is fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the risen Lord pours out the Holy Spirit and new covenant power from his throne at the right hand of God. Then that promise is fulfilled. God the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer individually and the church corporately. The Holy Spirit will be in you. Now, the more you recognize your insufficient, uh, insufficiency and inadequacy to face the challenges of life, the more precious is the promise of a helper. The more you see that, Lord, the challenges that you've given me in life are too great for me, and I'm, I can't. If, if that's your assessment of yourself, and by the way, it should be, uh, if that's your assessment of yourself, then, then you're, when you see Jesus promising another helper, that should just give you a sigh of relief. Jesus doesn't go to heaven and say, all right, guys, figure it out. Life's going to be rough and brutal, and you're going to experience many trials. Good luck. I hope you rise to the occasion. He says instead, no, no, no. 
I'm leaving, but I'm going to impart supernatural power. A helper is coming to help you face the challenges of life. Now, it's not popular in our world to linger too long over our inadequacy and insufficiency to face the troubles of life. The prevailing wisdom in our world is that, you know, you got this. Uh, whatever you're facing, dig deep and find in yourself the inner strength that you need and rise to the occasion and conquer. Unleash the lion within, something like that, right? Uh, I was re recently watching, um, what is that, Kung Fu Panda with my boys. Uh, and in, in Kung Fu Panda, the dragon warrior, this elite Kung Fu character, is given the, the singular privilege of opening the, the scroll, the sacred scroll that only the dragon warrior can open. It's a climactic moment in the movie. He takes out the scroll, and he opens it, and only he can read what's inside. But when he opens it, there's nothing on the scroll. The only thing he can see on that scroll is his reflection. And the message is clear. To be the dragon warrior, you don't need anything else. You are enough. You have it in yourself. Well, that's kind of the wisdom of the world. You've got this, right? You have the strength in yourself to do whatever you put your mind to do. And the biblical retort is, no, you can't. Uh, you are, in fact, inadequate and insufficient, and life will destroy you without divine and supernatural power. You're not sufficient to face illness, the death of loved ones, betrayal, a failed marriage. You don't have the strength in yourself to face those things. And when you do so, when you attempt in your own power to face the challenges of life, you fail. Life destroys you. The winds of life knock you down. But, says Jesus, you don't have to face life alone. There is divine, supernatural power in the Holy Spirit that strengthens you. And because of this supernatural power, you can please God in adversity and persevere. That is our hope. Our hope isn't finally in ourselves, but in God and in the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. So that means if the Holy Spirit is helper, we need to learn how to lean on the helper. We need to learn how to rest in him. One, uh, for example, I'm sure you may have had this experience in your life where you, you, there's a meeting you're going to go into and you're sort of dreading it. You're worried that you might not keep your cool, you might lose your temper, or you're worried about saying something you shouldn't say. And you say, God, I know that I'm going to blow it if I go into this meeting alone. God, please, through your Holy Spirit, Give me wisdom to know what to say and what to not say. Give me wisdom to be patient. Go into the meeting, and you're calm, and you speak judiciously, and you walk out, and you go, that was, a, that was an answer to prayer. The Holy Spirit was operating there because there's no way that I and my strength could have done that. Uh, that's, that's not the exception in the Christian life. That's the normal Christian life, where we are leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do. There are moments in your walk with Jesus when obedience is just wearying, fatiguing, you feel like, I just can't keep going down this path of obedience anymore. I'm just tired. And we're tempted to quit. Say, Lord, I can't go anymore. I know you want me to go, but I can't go anymore. Where do we find the strength? The Holy Spirit. I say, God, I don't have the strength to go anymore, but I know your Holy Spirit can empower me. So God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would give me power to keep putting one foot in front of the other and do what pleases you. And I know that I can keep going because of the Holy Spirit. We should pray with a sense of expectation and confidence. We should ask God to meet the needs that we have through His Helper, the Holy Spirit. And we should expect that He will. The Christian life is a supernatural life. Live not in our own strength, but in the strength of God, the Holy Spirit. G.I. Packer, in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, 
observes, all Christians, time and again, are forced to cry, Lord, help me, strengthen me, enable me, give me power to speak and act in the way that pleases you, make me equal to the demands and pressures which I face. We are called to fight evil in all its forms in and around us, and we need to learn that, uh, that in this battle, the Spirit's power alone gives victory. We're often confronted with our inadequacy, Pagar is saying. We're often put in a position where we say, Lord, help me. And in, the, in those moments, we need to look to God to provide through the Holy Spirit what we need but lack. Praise, praise be to God that he has given us a helper and hasn't left us, as Jesus says, as orphans. Uh, one other thing to note here. So that's the helping ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. What that means for us is that he illuminates God's word, God's truth, and enables us to see the truth and believe the truth. But specifically for the disciples, for those who initially and originally followed Jesus, the the promise that the Holy Spirit will impart truth means something, includes that, but also means something else. Look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, as we, as we read through the Gospels, we notice the disciples aren't great at understanding what Jesus is teaching. They're not great at seeing the significance of his miracles and what he's doing. They often get it wrong. This presents something of a dilemma because these are the people that are going to give a scripture. These are the divinely appointed interpreters of God's saving revelation in Jesus. So, it's these two verses that help us to address that dilemma. Uh, Jesus is saying, after I arise from the dead, the Holy Spirit will come. And it's not so much that he's going to give you new information. He's going to help you to understand the significance of everything I've taught you. And he's going to bring to your, to your mind, he's going to help you remember all of the things you saw in my ministry and all of the things you heard in my ministry, such that you can be reliable eyewitnesses for the church and for subsequent generations. Our confidence that when we read the Gospels and we read the New Testament, read Scripture, uh, our confidence that there is no error in it, and this is the very Word of God, and it's completely reliable, and it includes everything He wants us to know, is these verses. The Holy Spirit is going to come to the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry, remind them of those things, enable them to write it down perfectly so that we would be able, uh, through their eyewitness testimony, to know about Jesus and His works and His life and believe and have life. So these words point us to the reliability of their witness, gives us confidence as we read Scripture. Okay, So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, is another helper. But we should note also in verses 18 through 24 that Jesus, um, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is the one who presents the Father and the Son to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who mediates or channels the presence of the Father and the Son to us. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now, there's some debate among scholars about what what Jesus means when he says, I'll come to you. Some argue that Jesus is talking about his appearances after the resurrection. Uh, He's going to die, but he's going to rise again. He's going to come to them. um, And so that's what's in view here. Um, Possibly, but I think that's unlikely. In light of the fact that after a short period of time, after the resurrection, he goes back to the Father. But here he's saying, I will not leave you as orphans. And the reason you're not going to be orphans is because I'm going to come to you. With the implication that there will be an abiding presence that keeps them from being orphans. And that, I think, better fits not with his post-resurrection appearances, 
but with the impartation of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit is given, Jesus himself comes to them and never leaves, leaves them as we've seen, and that's why they'll never be orphans. In my view, when Jesus says, I'll come to you, he's going to come to them not primarily after the resurrection, he's going to come to them at Pentecost. When the Holy, Holy Spirit is poured out in new covenant power, uh, because of course where the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, that's where the Son is, and as we'll see, that's where the Father is. So I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's going to come back to the original disciples and to us when the Spirit comes to us. In a little while, you won't see me anymore, uh, but you will see me. But you will, I'm sorry, the world will, not see, will no, no longer see me, but you will see me. And again, I take the seeing here, not to a literal post-resurrection seeing, possibly it's that, but to a seeing him spiritually by faith when the Holy Spirit comes. Earlier, Jesus says that whoever loves me is going to be given the helper, another helper. Here, though, in verse uh, 21, he says, this, he repeats the same thing, whoever loves me. Uh, but instead of saying the helper is going to come, he says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So this time, it's, he, he's, he doesn't say, I'm going to send the, the, another helper. This time he says, the person who loves me, walks in obedience, is going to be loved by my Father, and I'm going to make myself known to him. I'm going to reveal myself to him. And of course, that happens again through the Holy Spirit. Judas says, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? How is this selective revelation of yourself going to work? And Jesus says again, to those who love me, uh, both the Father and I are going to come and we're going to take up residence in them. We're going to dwell in them. And of course, that is again fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes down after Jesus' glorification, comes down at Pentecost, it's not just the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives. But with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son come and indwell us. I, don't, I, I can't adequately convey to you how massive that is. Jesus is saying the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are going to draw near and be intimately united with you in an inseparable way. In that coming, we get a foretaste of the age to come. As Revelation 21.3 reminds us, when all is said and done and the dust settles, the curtain closes on this present life and human, history as we know it comes to a close. Jesus comes back. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Amazing. The, the, the thing that we are primarily looking forward to in the age to come is not simply a renewed creation but a more intimate experience of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And remarkably, Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you get a foretaste of that future intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The theologian J.I. Packer describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the floodlight ministry. In other words, the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. And the, the work of the Holy Spirit helps us to, to see Him in all of His beauty and majesty more fully and love Him, delight in Him, worship Him, and submit to Him. 
So one sign of spiritual life, one sign that the Holy Spirit is moving in a person's life is they are Christ-intoxicated people. They delight to speak to Jesus in prayer, to reflect on Him and talk to others about Him. It, It should be worrying if you are a Christian and you're reluctant to talk about Jesus, there's a really conspicuous lack of enthusiasm for the Lord. That's problematic because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to mediate the presence of Jesus, help us behold His glory, delight in Jesus. And where we see people delighting in the Lord, loving Him, wanting to draw near to Him, speaking to Him others, to others because they can't contain their enthusiasm, that's where we see the Holy Spirit moving. That is a symptom of spiritual life. The Spirit enables us to behold our Lord. And indeed, the Spirit enables us to experience the Father and the Son. Christianity is not simply about right thinking, as important as that is. Christianity is about an experience of the living God, mediated by the Holy Spirit. In response to the truth, yes. But it's it's not just cerebral, it's not just ideas. It's about an encounter with God that satisfies us at the deepest level of our being. When I said I felt impoverished in speaking about this, part of, part of the reason I said that and I feel impoverished is because I, I know that I have, there's much more that in terms of my own experience of God, according to this passage, that I haven't even begun to understand. But we, through the Holy Spirit, we experience... Uh, the, pre- the very presence of the Father and Son. And, and we are maybe more con- conscious of this in m- mountaintop experiences in our walk with the Lord. Like you have those moments where, for example, the love of God is no longer just an idea. You have those, those moments, uh, fleeting though they may be in life, where, where that truth just sets your heart on fire. And in that moment, you know you are in the presence of Jesus. You know He's there. You know His love. You, could, you can do anything in those moments. You could climb any mountain and no temptation seems too great because there is a profound awareness of the very presence of the Father and the Son. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a 17th century thinker, Frenchman, described one such experience of God. And he wrote, From about half past ten in the evening till about half past twelve, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. And hopefully we've experienced that to at least some degree, those moments of rapture, that, those moments of intense awareness of the presence of God. And certainly we should, experience, we should pursue an experience of those things. Through the truth, through prayer, but we should certainly pursue those things. But what I want to stress is that those mountaintop moments are in a sense not different from the rest of the Christian life. They're an intensification of what is always true. And the always is we are always in the sacred presence of the triune God if we're believers. There's never a time when God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son isn't intimately connected to us and we are not in their presence. We are always in the presence of God. There's some moments we become more intensely aware of that fact. But objectively speaking, We are always in the presence of the sacred. We ought to live life, as theologians used to say, quorum Deo, before the face of God. For the believer, there's no such thing as a sacred and ordinary divide. You know, this part of my life, this little snippet here is sacred, going to church prayer, and the rest of it is common. 
No, it's precisely because God himself dwells within you that all of life is sacred. All of life is lived before his face. That's why Paul could say whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we should do all things to the glory of God because all of life for the believer is sacred given the indwelling presence of God. So how can we experience more of God and find this heart fulfillment in him? Well, uh, J.I. Packer, again, same book, um, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, uh, identifies one important obstacle to that kind of communion with God, relationship with God. And here's what he says. The pace and preoccupations of urbanized, mechanized modern life are such that any sort of inner life is hard to maintain. Amen. Right? We all have unending to-do lists, right? We're all busy. So he says it's hard to cultivate a rich inner life. To make prayer your priority, as countless Christians of former days did, is stupendously difficult in a world that runs you off your feet and will not let you slow down. The concept of, Christi- the, concept of the Christian life as sanctified rush and bustle still dominates. And as a result, the experiential side of Christian holiness remains very much a closed book. There's a lot of noise in our souls. And we're much better at doing things for Jesus, going places for Jesus, than simply being still contemplating, praying, and dwelling in his presence. Modern people, he says, given the environment we operate in, have a bias against that kind of thing. We're all rushing, we're all going, we're all, you know, we're all trying to scratch off the, the items on our to-do list. But what is needed, he says, is time for quiet, for contemplation, for communion with God. We, I think we're going to have to hold each other accountable here and encourage each other, because it's hard... Uh, very often to do that alone. But all of us need to be growing in that. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit imparts truth. The Holy Spirit, yes, mediates the presence of the Father and the Son. And finally, as Jesus speaks to his disciples to prepare them for his departure, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The promise for the Spirit, promise for peace. In Scripture, peace is not simply the cessation of hostility, which is often the way we use it. No more war. That's a component of it. And certainly we have, the hostilities between God and man have ceased through Christ. Whereas God stood against us in judgment uh, as our judge because of our sins, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've been cleansed of our sins. And God no longer stands against us. We have been reconciled to God and have peace with God. So in that sense, the hostility has ceased. But even beyond that, peace means that we live under the blessing and favor of God. If you belong to Jesus, you live under God's blessing and favor. And finally, this peace is an anticipation of the final peace to come, the final shalom, when everything will be put right, when all things will be rightly aligned in the new creation. We get, we get a glimpse of that even in this life, Jesus is saying. And we get it, I think, in the context of the Holy Spirit. In verse 27, when Jesus starts speaking about peace, he's talking about the peace that the Holy Spirit imparts. Indeed, in Galatians 5.22, we see that one aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. And so the peace that Jesus promises comes into our lives through the Holy Spirit. And this peace is like a, a fortification that keeps our heart from giving way to anxiety and troubles in this life. If you're trying to find peace by controlling your circumstances, which some of you are, you're never going to find it. You're always going to be anxious. because You can never be fully in control of your circumstances. If you're trying to find peace by 
you know, having a bank account that's increasingly swelling with money or, or whatever it is, you're always going to be anxious and it's never going to be enough. Your circumstances, no matter how ideal or good, won't provide peace. Only God can do that. But Jesus is saying, those who look to me, who have a robust confidence in me, can go through this life, even in the worst moments, with courage and poise. Because their hope is not finally in circumstances or finances or the economy or who's president or whatever. Their hope is finally in the living God. And that gives you a, 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 a stubborn peace that, is, that doesn't readily dissipate when uh, circumstances are hard. We ought to, and this peace can be found then as we look to Jesus, rest in Him, seek Him, uh, and seek Him in prayer, we, we discover this peace that He promises. Many of us uh, you know, think of prayers as kind of last resort, don't we? It said that there were two Christians together, and one of them said, you know, things are, things are getting pretty dire. Let's, uh, let's pray. And the other one responded, is it as bad as all that? <laughs> you know, we really need to pray. You know, all, have all options really been exhausted, and that's all we're left with is prayer? Well, for, for those who walk with the Lord, prayer shouldn't be the last resort. It should be the first option. We should bring our burdens to the Lord, cast them on Him, and walk in the peace that only He can provide. So uh, Jesus knows what's facing his disciples, both his original disciples and us. They're going to face trials and persecutions and hardships. But he says, if you come to me, you trust in me, I'm going to provide peace in the midst of it all. So go to Jesus and experience the peace that only he can give. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. uh, And we love you because you first loved us. Thank you so much for all of the ways in which you prepared your disciples originally, because all of these things reveal your heart toward us. It reveals your compassion towards us, reveals your readiness to protect us from all harm. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We want to go deeper. We want to go deeper in our knowledge of your word, but we want to go deeper also in our experience of your presence in our lives and in the Father. Uh, We know that there are depths here that we've not yet uh, experienced, and we pray that you'd grant us to see more and more of you, more and more of the Father through the Spirit. Work in our midst, we ask. Help us to take your words to heart and to be shaped by them and lead lives that are truly pleasing to you. Amen.